If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Will you bow your heads with me? Your name was used a lot last week, Holy One. They debated about it for two hours on the floor of the Oklahoma House of Representatives. And then they voted to spend at least $85,000 to adorn state buildings with the claim, in God we trust. Please don't wince, Holy One. We know that scripture tells us that you have not been thrilled about similar efforts of religious showmanship. I hate, I despise your festivals. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the prophet Amos said on your behalf. And instead, from the prophet Isaiah, you asked, is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and don't hide yourself from your own kin? It seems that our faithfulness will be measured not by the signs on our buildings, but by how well we do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with you. So let us try again, Holy One. In God, we trust, so we will stop protecting the possibility that we might become rich so that we can focus on why there are so many who are poor. In God, we trust, so we will quit pretending like there isn't enough room in this country for everyone who wants to come as if we are not ourselves strangers in a strange land. In God we trust, so we will stop trying to take an eye for an eye and instead pursue mercy. In God we trust. May our lives prove it. Amen. The sermon this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. 
For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Most of you know that the church that raised me was a very small, semi-rural Southern Baptist congregation. The parking lot was gravel, the baptistry was always cold, and the most beloved songbook was a shape note hymnal. Nothing was elaborate, extravagant, or embellished, except for the children's Christmas pageant costumes, which have been lovingly and expertly made by hand. The fanciest thing in the whole church was the punch bowl, which no one but women in my grandmother's generation were allowed to touch. No one mistook us for a church with first in the name, you know, the big steeple congregations, first Baptist, first Christian, first Presbyterian, you know the type. And, and if you don't, well, then come sit next to anyone raised in a small church and we can share the chip on our shoulder with you. It seems to me that the church in Corinth may have been one of those big steeple churches. First Church Corinth. Corinth was a large and prospering urban center, and Paul is writing this letter to them in order to settle a number of disputes. I mean, true, some of those disputes are about belief, like physical resurrection, but most of the disputes are not about doctrine. Most of the disputes are about how to love one another outside of the established social hierarchy. For example, Paul has to tell the haves to wait for the have-nots at the Lord's table, and not just to wait, but to welcome them and make them guests of honor. He also writes to them about filing lawsuits, wearing veils, and eating idol food in the local temple, which were all issues that were creating divisions in the faith community, and all of those issues were related to the exercise of social privilege. Those with more went first and made the rules for the rest. This, of course, is not actually a problem faced only by first church people. All church people seem to be fairly well-versed in establishing hierarchy. Every church has someone or someones who think the size of their tithes should reflect the amount of attention they get from the pastor or the size of their influence in the board meeting. I mean, obviously not anyone at this church. I'm just saying in other churches, they're always there. But this likely 
is why Paul begins his letter as he does, with a startling, sober reminder that followers of the way are to be shaped and guided by something other than social expectations, that the church in Corinth should be guided by the cross. You'll notice that Paul doesn't describe what happens on the cross, does not break down what happens to the body during a crucifixion, does not spell out the message that the cross was intended to convey to the frightened masses. That's because the Corinthians knew what it meant. They were not too far removed. They knew the fear of the cross, the literal terror of crucifixion. They knew. But we don't. Not really. Not in our day and age. Not in our context. Churches have either moved the cross out of the sanctuary because we don't know what to do with the theology of the cross, or we have gilded it so that it matches the rest of our decor, or we've turned it into a colossal roadside attraction. And all of those options, well, really, it just says that it's clear that we are not clear about the cross. As scholar Richard Carlson reminds us, the cross was capital punishment meted out by the Roman Empire. It was reserved for those individuals or groups like rebellious enslaved folks, insurrectionists, pirates, or would-be insurgents who threatened the empire. The cross was an imperial instrument used to suppress subversion. As a public spectacle, crucifixion was an act geared towards shaming its victims through degradation, humiliation, and torture before, during, and even after death. At the same time, it was a political statement which declared that all who threatened the imperial social order would find themselves co-crucified with the current victim. It was government-sponsored killing. And Jesus walked right into it, choosing to let the empire play out its policies in order to reveal its deep injustice and death-dealing ways and prove that love wins. In verse 23 of our scripture lesson, Paul describes Christ crucified using the word skandalon, which translated from Greek means stumbling block, snare, hindrance, offense. There is something about the image of the cross of Jesus crucified that is a stumbling block. Paul believed this reminder would shake up the Corinthians who were behaving more like followers of Caesar than followers of Christ. And perhaps, perhaps this is what we need too in this particular moment, a reminder that will jolt us awake. You may be thinking that this is really not what we need. After all, we're dealing with a pandemic here, Pastor. Read the room, sister. But this is exactly the right time for a shakeup, for a reminder that we are not supposed to be doing things that we have all, the way that we have always done them, that our following of a man who was crucified radically influences, or should radically influence, how we live in the world. So as we begin to shake off the constraints and the routines of the past year, a year of just surviving, a year of being 
caring for each other by staying home and keeping still, the cross can give us a renewed sense of direction and focus by the way it causes us to stumble before we even get out of the gate and charge right back into that proverbial rat race. There are things that need our attention, and the cross is just the thing to trip us up, to wake us up, and make us pay attention. The cross as state-sanctioned murder should bring us up short, whether it takes the form of extrajudicial killing of beloved and usually black parents, siblings, children, and community members by law enforcement or vigilantes, or deprivation of healthcare in jails, prisons, detention facilities, or border patrol facilities, or the state execution of any human being declared guilty in a judicial system as biased and slipshod as ours has proven to be. The cross should make us think twice about making the argument that there is any good reason to bomb Syria. For don't all empires always justify the use of force? It seems that every presidential administration for the last 20 years has a good reason to drop explosives there. This is why the phrase endless war exists. The cross should be a stumbling block to the idea that a new US president earns their wings when they drop bombs in the Middle East for the first time. The cross moves us to ask ourselves just how comfortable we are with the similarities between the Roman Empire and the American Empire. The cross as a reminder that Jesus was condemned to death as an innocent person should give us pause. To date, the Innocence Project has used DNA evidence to free more than 375 people who were wrongfully convicted, including 21 who were on death row. Wrongful incarcerations are a reflection of a society unbothered by racial, economic, and political injustice. The cross reminds us to be bothered. What Jesus' death on the cross reveals is the degree to which human judgment is tainted by self-interest and judgment by the state is trained by the interests of the state, which are not always the interests of the people. In her article, Against Innocence, Black Studies scholar Jackie Wang examines which instances of police violence are picked up by activists as useful in pushing for systemic change, namely those in which the person brutalized comes closest to being a perfectly innocent victim. Those with police records, poor grades, a history of school suspensions, or any history of substance abuse or emotional crises do not make good candidates for a public campaign. And this means, essentially, that anyone who would not, did not, or could not conform to the expectations of a racist, classist, patriarchal, and otherwise unjust society is not collectively fought for. They get passed by. Their lives are treated as if they do not matter in the way that so-called innocent lives do. Whereas, Wang points out, innocence is just code for non-threatening to white society. Taken to its logical conclusion, this renders 
those who resist injustice beyond the realm of communal caring. This was the dynamic Roman authorities were banking on in their crucifixion of Jesus, that there were people beyond the realm of communal caring, that no one would take up the cause for or defend this guy who was a nobody. They did not account that people were actually paying attention to his teaching. They were not counting on anyone doing anything differently. But as we read in the text today, followers of Jesus began to use the cross as a guide, as inspiration for flipping tables and shaping the world differently, starting with their own. This is our inheritance of faith. The cross should render business as usual obsolete. The cross should grind business as usual to a halt. It looks like sit-ins, die-ins, and Black Lives Matter marches. It looks like activists who walk into freeways to block traffic. It looks like Sunday school classes who organize sacred and candid conversations around race, religion, and countering the sin of white supremacy and institutional racism. It looks like speaking out against bombings and occupation and then electing people who, stop, who will stop saying yes to endless war. Some say it is foolish to try to bring all that change, but that is only true for the perishing, as Paul wrote. People of faith know that this is exactly why it will work. They thought they could kill Jesus, but we're still talking about him. The cross refuses to let us stay in our lane. It gives us a path forward and keeps us moving in the direction of each other. Let us not forget, church. Take up thy cross, as Jesus said, and let's go disrupt the status quo. This is what it means to be fools for Christ. Oh, that we would earn that title. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are currently online only, premiering at 11 a.m. on Mayflower's Facebook page. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.